Now, I'm not a kind of computer game sort of a guy. I don't know if some of you, uh, you here are really into computer games, but I've never been uh, that, sort of, that way inclined, let's say. Um, however, there are a few games over the years that have captured my imagination. Now, obviously, at this point, I could wheel off uh, the ZX Spectrum classics that uh, I had in my childhood, Manic Miner. Yeah. There, was, there was a gasp of awe from over here at that point. Jet Set Willy, the prequel. Emlyn Hughes, International Soccer. Uh, (laughs) That was brilliant, James. Two peas in a pod, love it. Um, But I won't. Uh, Instead, my mind goes to a game I I, I got into, uh, one of the few games, um, when I was at university, which is a game called Theme Hospital. Does anyone play? Yeah, there are whoops. We have a computer game contingent. Great. Um, Now, Theme Hospital, as the name sort of suggests, is a game where you get to run a hospital, basically. And so, there we go. Um, You get to to build rooms and hire staff and stuff like that. And your, your plan is basically to make the greatest hospital in your whole virtual town or whatever. And uh, one of the things I loved about this game was there were all these fictitious illnesses that would come up that you'd have to cure, okay? And uh, my favorite was an illness called bloaty head syndrome, okay? Now, uh, basically what would happen is if you got enough money, you could buy a bloaty head syndrome machine and a room of your your hospital would have the bloaty head syndrome machine. And at this point, this queue of, uh, of these little characters with pixelated massive heads, okay, would queue up and they'd go into the room, and one after another, they'd kind of they'd be like, and they'd come out with normal-sized heads, okay? Uh, so it's like these, these massive heads, and they'd just be deflated like that. It was a brilliant thing. I, I enjoyed it. It was always the first thing I'd buy in the game, okay? So um, with this uh, it buried in the back of my memory, imagine my surprise then when I, uh, I come to prepare a talk uh, from the Bible, looking at the pages of the Bible and the Gospel of Luke as we're going through, and I find my favorite computer game fictional illness in the Bible, Imagine. Now, not only that, but we also find a bloaty head fixing machine too. And uh, surreally speaking, uh, his name is Jesus. Now, I know that sounds a little odd, so I probably need to back myself up slightly. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, if you could turn to Luke 14, uh, we're going to be in verses 1 to 14, and you'll see Jesus, the bloaty head syndrome machine. Now, just to say at this point, I know some of you will be thinking, uh, don't you worry about this. Uh, some words are going to appear behind you. Uh, no, they're not going to. Mac PC problems, don't worry about that. So you will actually probably need a Bible or reasonably attentive ears or a phone. Okay, just so you know. Uh, it, normal service will be resumed, I'm assuming, next week. But Luke 14, 1 to 14, I'm reading from the New International Version. Um, oh, actually, just as I need to say this before we uh, read this. Um, as we see this story, as you're going to see, there is a man in the story with a real illness, okay? And I'm in no way, by, by making my comment, and I will be referring to the bloaty head syndrome as we go along uh, today, I'm in no way intending to belittle or ridicule the man in this passage's actual condition. As you're going to see, he has a serious uh, affliction, you know? Um, but just my point's going to be, as we go through, just to give you a heads up, um, as well as healing this guy's real condition, which we're going to see in the passage, Jesus uses him as a visual aid of a spiritual affliction, actually a sickness of character that he also uh, wants to heal. And it's that syndrome that we're going to be talking about and focusing on today. So with that said, I just wanted to, didn't want to lead him up the wrong way with that. Luke 14, here we go. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what's going on here then? Well, basically, I'm sure as you can see, Jesus meets a man who has a disease and his disease causes his body to swell up, it says. Okay, an abnormal swelling. In some versions of the Bible, some of you might have uh, translations, it would call this uh, illness dropsy. Now, dropsy is an old medical term, wouldn't be used, uh, I don't think so much nowadays, but it talks about a condition caused by kind of excess fluid retention in the body. And basically, you're if you had dropsy, as they used to call it, or what this guy seems to have, uh, your body would accumulate excess water and you would swell up. And usually I think that would be your arms and your legs, but it could uh, be more than that in your body. And so this guy, Jesus sees him, it says, and as so often in the gospel, Jesus sees his pain. He sees his kind of, uh, probably his sort of isolation that this illness causes him in that culture as well. And so he has mercy on him and he physically heals him. Just then and there, I mean, it's incredibly kind of brusque. He healed him and then sent him away, like, as, you, as you do. But uh, it almost looks a little bit like that. Well, Jesus has been quite dismissive. Let's just hold this a minute. He heals the guy's condition. Jesus loves the guy and he shows that by healing him. But, it, but it's almost at the same time that he notices something else going on around him. It's interesting in this passage, it says that the, the Pharisees were carefully watching Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what, Jesus is carefully watching here as well. And he sees other things happening around him. And he notices, well, there are other people here who have a similar condition to this man in their spirits reflected by what he has in his body. What Jesus noticed was a kind of spiritual dropsy going on around him, and he addresses it straight after healing this man. Verse 7 says this, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he noticed something going on. He goes, this is reflective of there's something going on here inside that's wrong with these people, and he addresses the issue. Verse 11, I think, is where he puts it most uh, fully, probably the, the, the verse that most fully kind of encapsulates this passage. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is about people who exalt themselves. And uh, how would we put that? That's a funny word, exalt, isn't it? I think we could use lots of terms for that. People who lift themselves up. People who push themselves forward. People who puff themselves out. Who big themselves up even. 
And we would use phrases like that, I think, for people who exalt themselves. We would call them big heads or have inflated egos or swelled with pride. But we would, just as they would, we'd understand something. There's this something about pride and this kind of aggressive self-promotion that's going on here. And we would use metaphors for this kind of swelling idea. And you see it in the passage with the guy. The, the man with the swollen body is embodying the spiritual condition that Jesus wants to address. And actually, the thing is, the man with the swollen body would have recognized his condition. Everyone, would have, everyone else around him would have seen it. He would have known it was the case. But actually, lots of people with the corresponding spiritual condition have absolutely no idea it affects them. And Jesus is very keen in this passage to wake them up to their condition and then just as he's done with the man, offer healing. And I think that's what Jesus wants to do uh, this morning. So what I'd like to do, and what I'd like us to do together, I'd like us to become uh, experts in the field of spiritual dropsy. I want us to become medical experts on bloaty head syndrome. That's what I'd like to do today. I'd like us to understand this fully. (laughs) Dave, I was hoping you wouldn't be here today. We have medics in the room. So, you know, uh, I'm imagining how you'd analyze an illness, okay, from my (laughs) limited experience. But I want us to understand the causes of this condition. How do you catch it? I want to understand the symptoms of this condition. I want us to understand the, the cure for this condition. And right at the end, I'd like us also to think, well, once we've been cured, how do we then live as survivors of bloaty head syndrome. Okay, that's my intention today. I want us to be able to self-diagnose this, see how this affects us, and then receive Jesus' cure. So let's start with the causes then. How do you catch bloaty head syndrome, according to this passage? Well, in short, this illness, this condition, is caught like I was talked about last time if you were here before. It's exactly the same thing being commented on. It's by approaching God in a religious, rule-keeping manner. And just to say, uh, I... If you were here about three, four weeks ago and I spoke on a, a very similar passage, you're likely to have some deja vu about now because the beginning of this passage is almost identical to that passage. But it, it may be helpful. It's on the internet to download that because I'll be talking about that a little more. But it's the same. Uh, but I will tell you again uh, for today. What I talked on last time and how I defined uh, this religious way of life is living your life uh, trying to impress God by keeping the rules. That's how I'm defining that, that kind of religious way of life. If you live life trying to impress God by keeping the rules, you will likely catch bloaty head syndrome. And, and you see this link in two ways in the passage. First, it's the very setting of the passage, which, which cannot be ignored. It's, it's the atmosphere of this is a religious atmosphere. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, a prominent Pharisee. Pharisees are religious rulers of the day. As it goes on, he's surrounded by Pharisees, and it says experts in the religious law. And the discussion is a religious discussion. It's about the Sabbath and the rules and things like that. It, clearly, that's the setting Jesus is in. And so when we get to verse 7, it says Jesus talks to the guests He's clearly got an eye on those guys as well. He's been having this chat with the religious bigwigs, but also it's into an atmosphere of religion. It's, it's seeped in. By religion, I don't mean a sociological concept of a religion. I mean people are trying to impress God by keeping the rules. That's how they operate here, and he's speaking straight into it. You can also uh, see that Jesus is linking this sort of self-promoting pride to rule-keeping religion. When you look broader at how Jesus comments on religion throughout the Gospels as well. 
If you, you don't need to go far, just back three chapters, which for us is probably about six months. Um, I remember Jonathan spoke on Luke uh, chapter 11. And uh, if you remember the scene, Jesus is round, again around a Pharisee's house. And this time, he doesn't, let, he doesn't hold back to see. He just goes into this tirade against the Pharisees. And in verse 43, he, 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 he has a go at them for exactly the same thing. He says to them this, Woe to you, Pharisees, Luke eleven forty-three, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. So Jesus uh, sees something in this kind of seeking out of the places of honor, whether it's the marketplace or the synagogue or or here at wedding feast. He sees something that's associated with religious people. That's how he sees this whole idea. Actually, another passage uh, is very telling on this is in Matthew chapter 6, Uh, where Jesus really reveals probably why he makes this link uh, with the religious people of his day. In Matthew 6, um, it's a a larger passage, but some of us would be aware of this. It's it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is encouraging his followers to to undertake certain spiritual disciplines, so to pray and to fast and to give to the poor and to do the right thing. And uh, as he does it, he, he contrasts. He says, do it like this. Don't do it like this. And by the don't do it like this, he means don't do it like the religious people are doing it at the moment and so he he says uh, don't be like the religious hypocrites that's the phrase he uses when you pray give to the poor fast and practice righteousness because this is the phrase he uses of them they do all those things in front of others to be seen by them that's the phrase in front of others to be seen by them and for Jesus the main problem of his religion in his day was not they didn't pray fast etc but was their motivation they were praying and fasting and doing all these things, not to love God or not because they cared about anybody, but because they wanted to be seen by others. They wanted to look good. They wanted to take the place of honor so others thought they were important, thought they were clever and all of that sort of stuff. The link is very clear in Jesus' mind. If you try to impress God with your life, it will automatically lead you trying to live your life to impress everyone else around you. That's the link Jesus is saying. If you're here this morning and your life kind of lifestyle and motivation is, I want to do all these things because then God will be pleased with me because then he'll be impressed if I pray and if I do this. You know what? You'll end up, uh, that attitude will overspill into every area of your life. If you see God as one who you're going to strive to impress, you'll start to see everybody else in the same sort of way. Rule-keeping religion breeds show-offs who try to puff themselves up at every turn because their motto is in front of others to be seen by them. And that's exactly what's going on here too. Cause, what's the cause of bloaty head syndrome? Well, the cause, quite clearly, is trying to impress God by keeping the rules. The two things are linked. So we've got the cause. So let's go on to some symptoms then in our uh, drive to become experts on this very technical condition. And uh, as we've got symptoms, we see a very specific symptom listed in this passage. And uh, the, the, the specific symptom is that at wedding feasts, these people were, are going for the most important places. They're kind of jostling for position in that sort of way. Now, I think what's important to note here is how totally blunt Jesus is being. Sometimes we miss this and we kind of see it in a kind of abstract way. But imagine being there at the time, okay? He's being incredibly blunt, 
And he's, he's, he's making the point that he really wants people to identify themselves in what he's saying. Like if, you've, if you're familiar with the kind of church thing, like the talk on the Sunday thing, you'll often know that there, there, are, there are many talks where the, 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 the preacher will say something like, they'll highlight some sort of sin, uh, pride or something, and then go, well, what you need to do is prayerfully consider whether this applies to you. And you should go home and think about it and look for the conviction of the Spirit, etc., etc. Okay, This is not that kind of talk from Jesus here. No, no. He's, he's being much more kind of to the point uh, in, on this occasion. In fact, he pretty much names and shames the people he's talking to. So when he says, for example, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, it's important to recognize he's speaking to people who are at a feast who have taken the place of honor already, okay? So, for example, it would be like me today standing up and saying, um, here's the message of my talk today. Um, I'm talking about why when you come to church, you shouldn't sit on the front row. Like, like, it would be like that, you know. John wouldn't have to go soul-searching, is this sermon for me? He's only have to, to count the number of rows in front of him. If it's less than one, it's for him, okay? That's how it is. Um, now, it could be others in the room, uh, would be, uh, that could be applicable to. Imagine, this isn't the case here, very much not the case, but you wanted to sit on the front row. You really did, and you couldn't quite get there because it was so full. Okay, I just take this as my personal hygiene or something, the, the front row rule, but anyway. Uh, but it, so it could apply to you as well in that case, but you'd know, you'd be there. You would have just had those thoughts in your head like a moment before. What's the point? Well, Jesus wants his audience to know who they are. He wants people to know whether they're affected by this spiritual dropsy that he's been talking about. He's very clean on it. And the problem I think we've got here is while his example worked very, very well and really hit home to the people he was talking to then, I don't know about you, but I'm not that struck by the temptation to steal the place of honour at a wedding. I don't know if you've ever tried that. I, I don't know whether the, the wedding seating plan was invented as a direct response to this teaching, <laughs> but, but let's face it, it has certainly nailed the problem for most of us. I mean, has anyone ever been to a wedding, and I will have a hands up for this, where someone has tried to gate crash the top table? <laughs> no, okay, I didn't think so. I'd imagine most of us don't have that temptation. But the deal is this, Jesus is still very keen for us to be able to self-diagnose this problem. So we can't let the cultural distance from this example get us off the hook. The key thing here, let's get, we'll take away all of the, the example. The key thing is about people who push themselves into the places of honor. Can I, can I ask you, just think about that for a second. In your life, do you push yourself into the place of honor in any way? I'll give you some more up-to-date examples, maybe. Some questions to do a a spiritual health check on this and to see how we do. And again, before I say this, I want to be really clear. There's something about this whole thing which can be very easy to spot in other people. So as I go through this, you you might well think, yeah, they do that. Oh, yeah, they do that as well. Can, Can we resist that temptation? Because actually... We need to think about ourselves here. And I'll be up front with you as I read this list of questions. I don't want you to guess which ones, but I can see myself in at least two, okay? This affects us all, and we need to be honest before God. Of, Look, you know, I have a problem here. God, help me. Okay, so, so let's use some more up-to-date examples. Do you, do you feel the need, uh, maybe, to big yourself up in this way in, in your conversation? Maybe that's the realm in which, for you, it's an issue. Maybe you kind of subconsciously see every conversation you have as an opportunity to take the place of honor uh, amongst your peers. There's the wittiest, the cleverest, the kindest person your friends have the privilege of knowing. Name dropping, constantly trying to outdo other people's stories, interrupting all the time. Maybe that's the sphere where you try to seize the place of honor. 
Maybe it's different. Maybe it's how you spend your money. Maybe you don't think anymore so much about what you need or even sometimes what you like, but what can I buy that will get me the place of honor? Which brand of clothes? Which type of jewelry? Which make of trainer? Which car? Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's your home. Maybe you slave away on your house, meticulously cleaning, redecorating every six months. And it's not because you kind of feel more comfortable in that environment then. It's because you want to take the place of honor in your road, among the the social circles of Church Central or whatever other circles you go in. You want the place of honor. I think a tool that has almost been designed specifically for this in our generation is Facebook. I think Facebook has a very, very subtle way of drawing this out of us. And I think very few of us can spot it in ourselves, although we're very good at spotting it in other people. But can I ask you, the way you use uh, social media, is it living out the same kind of aggressive self-promotion that these guys did at wedding feasts 2,000 years ago? Maybe it's through your incredibly witty statuses or incisive social commentary. Maybe, actually, it's different. Maybe it's your minute-by-minute reports on your family successes. Or possibly uh, your habit of updating your profile picture every couple of minutes. Now, I just say with that list, I've tried to think of some ways to update this. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not thinking of that person, this or anything like that. And I would recognize this as well. Any of those things could be done for totally innocent reasons. They really could. We, we, we do want to look good to people. And that's, there's a big gray area here because that's not a bad thing. There's a dignity we have that's, that's an important thing to do. But I'm just asking you to ask yourself. If you see yourself in any of that, is it just that you just want to look good? That's fine. But I think it's important to ask yourself, well, actually, are we doing the same thing as these people did in those days? Are we trying to aggressively push ourselves forward and seize the place of honor, show everyone how important we are at every possible opportunity? And I'd imagine that for all of us, this would affect us somehow. This isn't an us and them message. I think this, this kind of condition gets us all. And hopefully if we can see that now, I think it's time that we now turn to the cure that Jesus offers in this passage and see how it affects us. Because just so you know, if you're feeling now like, hmm, this is big for me this thing remember what happened at the beginning of the passage a man came to jesus body swelled up jesus healed him and sent him away so it's almost instantaneous go go jesus can heal you he really can he can fix this okay so let's look at the the cure then uh, of this and the cure comes in three not so easy to swallow capsules i would say um and it's three pieces of information actually that i think we need to understand uh, with the power of the spirit but we need to understand three things and we see them all in the passage and the first one maybe is the most surprising how do we get a cure for bloaty head syndrome first thing we need to understand is that actually aiming for honor is not a bad thing in fact i'll go further we should aim for personal honor i'll let that sink in for a second just remind you of the passage it's, interesting here that Jesus does not actually criticize the people for wanting honor he criticizes them for how they pursue it and actually biblically there's nothing wrong with wanting honor I'll go even further than that there's something wrong with not wanting honor for yourself in a sense Romans chapter 2 verse 7 Paul writes this he says to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality God will wag his finger and say, don't be so proud. No, wait a minute. Uh, Eyes are going. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. 
Now, just to be clear, that verse is in a context. It's not saying, this is how you achieve eternal life. Off you go, you can do it. No, it's, Paul's very clear. You can only do this sort of thing with the transforming power of Jesus. But what he's clearly setting out is, this is an attitude God likes. Do good things. Persistence in doing good. God likes that. What motive? Seeking glory, honor, and immortality. What he's saying is this, which Jesus is implicitly saying in this passage. There's nothing wrong with seeking glory and honor for ourselves. In fact, we should seek those things. Jesus' concern isn't in this passage. Don't those filthy worms know how utterly, utterly awful they are and they should never aspire to anything? That's not his point here. Actually, if they follow Jesus' advice here, what do they end up getting? They get more honor. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you'd like to be honored, this is a bad way to do it. This is a good way to do it. They have a good chance of getting the honor they seek if they follow Jesus' advice. I I think that churches like ours, uh, with the view we have of sin and uh, human beings being sinners and stuff like that, I think we need to make sure we keep this balance in mind because we can really get the wrong end of the stick here and other people sense it. And so you might have had a conversation with people who aren't Christians. You may not be a Christian here this morning and have thought this of Christians. You just think all humans are are kind of scum. They're just worms. That's what humans, that's what Christians are saying. We should all be like on the floor, kind of like, oh, we're not worthy, that sort of thing. And sometimes I think we do paint that sort of picture. Can I be really clear on this? As we believe the Bible is church central, we do have a low view of human nature. I'll give you that. We do. We've low view of human nature. But we've got a massively high view of human value. Of other people's value and also our own value. And I'd suggest that in a society like ours, we're probably one of the only groups of people who can back up our high view of human value. If you go to an atheist and you're to say, what am I worth? What the atheist will encourage you to do is to look down and go, you see down there, below you in the evolutionary chain, Look at the fish and the dogs and the pigs and the monkeys. You're a bit like them, but a bit higher. That's your value. That's where you are. If you go to an Eastern thinker and you say, what am I worth? What's my value? They'll tell you to look around you. They'll say, look at the other forms of life around us. Look at the trees and look at the, uh, look at the, the, the bugs and, and look at the birds. You know what? You're just like them, part of the circle of life. You're nothing more, nothing less. That's your value. That's your worth. When we go to the Bible and we say, what am I worth? What does the Bible tell us to do? Does it tell us to look down? Does it tell us to look around? No, it gets to look up. To look up at the God who made everything. The all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving creator of beauty and everything else that goes with it. And then we hear a verse like this, Genesis 1.27. So that God up there, wow, still lost looking at him. We're going to spend lots of time worshipping him later. Well, look down for a second. That God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's your worth. That's your value. We need to have a view, and we need to state a view that that speaks of the wonderfulness of human beings, of people. You know what? We're wonderful. We're wonderful things. And it should affect how we treat others, but it should also affect how we think about ourselves. And actually, it leads us not to, oh, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, what could you, difference could you make? Dr- just dream small. It doesn't matter. You're just another, another dot on the planet. No, no, no. It causes us to seek honor. 
Because we understand there's something of God's image in us. And it's not, it's not because we're part of the great circle of life or because we're top of the food chain. That's because we're created in God's image. So first thing we need to, go to understand, it's important to know this, not wrong to seek honour. In fact, we should do it. Second thing, once we've got that then, the second part of the cure is this. Honour is something that is given. It's not something that is taken. That's the thing we've got to understand from this passage as well. Because you've got to ask if Jesus... Uh, doesn't identify the problem as the desire for honor. What is the, what is the problem here? Well, his problem is this. It's for people who exalt themselves, who honor themselves. They're the ones who are going to get humbled. They're the ones he challenges here. The problem Jesus sees in these people is that they see the task of getting honor as something completely in their court. It's something totally within their power. They are responsible for their own self-promotion and elevation. Their destiny, in that sense, is in their own hands. And they'll only receive honour then if uh, they push themselves forward and puff themselves up, often trying to obscure the people around them. But Jesus' teaching is very clear here. And we've got to understand this. This is just common sense. That's not how honour works. That's just not how the whole system works. We don't honour ourselves We are honoured. That's how honour operates. In a sense, he's just unpacking Proverbs 27 verse 2, where the writer of the Proverbs writes, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And so in a sense here, what Jesus is doing is simply giving some wise advice about how not to end up with egg on your face in your pursuit of honour. And let's face it, this is wise. We're gonna, there's another layer under this, by the way, but we've got to get the wisdom of this as well. It's a wise advice. Isn't it true that it's much more honouring when we hold back from blowing our old tr- own trumpet and then hear someone else doing it for us? Isn't that, doesn't that, isn't that a good thing? Wow, they're saying nice things about me. That's honouring to me. Isn't it much more honouring uh, when, when you put a status up on Facebook and like, Half an hour goes by, no one's put anything on it. It's not so wondering when you like your status yourself. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. It, it, it's better to wait for someone else to like it at first, you know. You get far more honour when that happens. You get far more honour when someone else tells others and starts talking about how great your family is rather than you pushing forward your own selected highlights of family life on Facebook day after day after day to impress people. It's true. And you know what? Actually, you're far more likely for that to happen when you act humbly and resist the temptation to show you off to others. There's wisdom here. So first of all, we see the cure for bloaty head syndrome. We should chase after honour. That's okay. okay. In fact, it's good. Secondly, honour is something given, not taken. We should wait for it, not kind of seize it like that. And then finally, that clears the way for the, this is the big one. This is the one that knocks this condition on its head. And it's the third thing. Ultimately, honour comes from God. And we see this, we recognise that in this passage, it's not just Jesus giving a little bit of wise teaching about social etiquette at a wedding. That's not what Jesus is doing here. We we see the clue is in verse 7, where it describes what Jesus is doing. In verse 7, it says what he does. He sees all these people getting the places of honour. And and it says, he does this, he told them this parable. It's kind of odd, that. Usually you think, tell them a parable, there was a king and he was over here and there's some servants. That's not what he does. He, he kind of seems to do some teaching. But by calling it a parable, we've got to realize, wait a minute, there's something going on here. 
there's a hidden layer of meaning. A parable is a story with a meaning. We've got to realize suddenly this, this is something that means more than just what it seems to mean on the surface. And, and the good news for us is I don't think we need to dig entirely that deep to find out what's going on beneath the surface. Jesus' point's quite straightforward here. Because listen, there are going to be all sorts of events and occasions in your life where you'd love to be honoured. I'm sure that's the case. And uh, there are lots of people who you'd love to be honoured by. I'm sure that's the case too. However, there is only one whose opinion of you ultimately will matter, whether he honours or dishonours you. And actually, there is one occasion more than any other else where your place at the table is going to matter. And that one is God. And that occasion is what's called in the very next passage, the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus often uses this image of the wedding feast, the wedding banquet, to talk about uh, eternal life with him forever after we die. That's an image that he often uses. In a sense, we should see this advice of this, when you were invited to a wedding feast, as a picture of heaven. That's how we should see it. And the parable is referring to that specific celebration. Actually, Jesus uses this wedding banquet thing because I think there are a lot of similarities between eternal life with Christ and a wedding banquet, not least because of the joy and the celebration that's there, obviously. But also, did you know that in both cases, there is a seating plan? Both at wedding feast and also in heaven. There's a seating plan for us. And uh, the seating plan, it revolves around the guest of honor at that banquet. And there will be a guest of honor. And everything will revolve around him forever. And that one will be Jesus And he will claim the best seat in the house at the wedding feast uh, of eternal life. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. I encourage you, if you do have a Bible, uh, to turn to this. This is so important to get. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. I'll read it a few times in case you don't have a Bible. Actually, no, I won't. I'll read it maybe once, but with emphasis. Anyway, (laughs) Paul writes this. He writes, Now when God raised Jesus from the dead... This is what he says. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given in the present age and the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything. I'll just let that sink in for a second. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, at God's right hand. Okay, God's right hand symbolizes his strength. God's saying, he's with me. Look at this. This is we're together on this. Okay? Far above, not just a little bit above, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. Can you see the wave after wave of Paul saying, he'll get honor, he'll get honor, he'll get honor, he'll get glory. He's just giving us more and more. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything. This is a significant amount of glory going to Jesus right here. Paul's very keen for us to know that. And that's the, the, head, the head seat. That's the best seat in the house. So the, the question that we've got to ask then is, where do we sit in this whole deal, in the, in the wedding feast of the Lamb? Where do we sit? Well, Paul, after writing that, in the very next chapter, then makes it very clear where we sit. And here's the incredible thing. We're going to share Jesus' honor. Ephesians 2, verse 6. Can I give you a moment just to turn to it? It's not far. Ephesians 2, 6. He wants us to remember what he's written before. And he says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying that when we become Christians, our future fate is sealed. It's past tense. He seated us with him. 
When it's, it's saying when that happens, it's already settled that when we die, we will in some way share the honor that Jesus earns. Now, I just want to flag this up the right way. There's incredible mystery here. And if you put all the dots together in the wrong way, this is going to lead you into some trouble. Okay, But just because there's mystery doesn't mean we should lose the point of this. Because the Bible clearly teaches that on that day, seated on that seat, Jesus will not be basking in his honor on his own while we're all face down on the floor in the dust. That's not his intention. In some way, he will share his honor with us. We, in some sense, share Jesus' seat at the feast, the best seat. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I'm not saying we're going to be equal to Jesus in stature. I'm not saying the angels will bow down and worship us and sing songs about us. But in a real way, we're going to share the honor given to Jesus. That's mind-blowing stuff. If you've not considered that before, just let that sweep over you. Because if you do, you'll probably see here why we get a cure for our bloaty head syndrome right about now. Why we get cured from the need to promote ourselves and puff ourselves up and push ourselves forward. Because in Jesus, we've already secured a position of honor that's far beyond our wildest dreams. When heaven applauds the Son of God, who was responsible for the audacious and costly rescue of all mankind, not to mention the creation of everything that's been made, in a strange way, if you're a Christian here, some of that glory is going to rub off on you. Does that put into context a couple of likes on Facebook? Possibly. Maybe that puts into perspective the opinions of our friends and our family and our boss and our church leader and even our heroes slightly. Well, does it? Does it? <laughs> We've got a chuckle. <laughs> the cure for religious rule keeping is God's grace. We talked about that last time, didn't we? But sometimes to root it out thoroughly, I think we've got to go a bit deeper into God's grace than we do. God's grace is essentially, you know what, God loves me because of Jesus, not because of what I've done. You know, God loves me because of Jesus, not because of what I've done. That's the essential thing. We never lose that. But it's important not just to leave it there. Just God loves me yeah, because of all that. We dig deeper to understand more about God's grace. What does it mean when we say God loves us? Well, it's not, it's not a slight thing, his gracious love. It's not a patronizing pat on the head or a reluctant invitation to spend eternity with him. Now, God's unearned grace will be poured out on us in honor beyond our wildest imaginings. If you're a Christian and you want to stop falling back into that temptation of living to try to impress God through your rule keeping, one way to do that is to reflect over and over again on the magnificence of the things that he gives us, the incalculable riches of the gifts that he offers us. Because I I explain what, what I mean here. If you think that God's grace to you equals a ticket to cloud cuckoo land and the odd prayer answered every now and again, okay, I'll say this as respectfully as I can. I think for me, I think, you know what? I could probably just about make that, actually. I mean, I'm not the best, but I can do things that might get me those things. I'm not saying I could, but I think we could be justified in that sort of thinking. When we realize, actually, no, 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 what's on offer here is to be whisked into Jesus' seat of ultimate honor for all eternity, sharing in the glory and fame of the one who won it through a perfect life, through a sacrificial death, and through actually annihilating death and Satan on the cross. You've got to sit back and say, game over. I ain't getting anywhere close to that. You know what? I'm not going to be there. I can't do it. We could never do anything to deserve that. 
but we get it through his grace. If you really see that, you know what? You'll stop trying to impress him and you'll walk in to know what it is to live life on the back of gratitude and on the good of it. And you certainly won't see the need to impress the people around you anymore. Can I ask you, direct question, do you want to be free from the need to self-promote yourself so vigorously? There's too many selves in that sentence, but anyway. Um, do you want to stop appearing such a big head? Maybe that's an easy way to put it. <laughs> now, understand ultimately then that your honour does not depend on your effort. It doesn't depend on your achievements. It doesn't depend on your status in life. It depends on God. And he offers each of us more honour than we will know what to do with. Now, I know that sounds really easy in one respect. And in one respect, it is. If you're not a Christian here, you could know what it is to be seated with Christ today here by accepting Jesus. I encourage you to to do that as we we worship later. Just call out to God, maybe quietly. God, if you're there, you know, I I want some of this. Help me and come and talk to some of us. We'd like to maybe start a conversation rather than finish it for some of you. For others, maybe it is finishing that conversation. But at the same point, it's seeming easy. I recognize as well that in another sense, it's the most difficult pill to swallow that there is because it involves doing the thing that is most difficult for a human being to do. Jesus makes it clear. If you want to be exalted, what do you need to do? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Accepting that we cannot impress God or earn his favor through our own efforts is an act of utter humility. So I just can't do it. I'm not good enough to achieve these things. It's, it's, it's humble. It's difficult to do. And it's difficult whether you do that for the first time or for some of you who've been a Christian for many years, come back to God and say, yeah, okay, I'll remember it again. I can't do it, can I, God? That's humbling. But that's what God calls us to do. Whoever humbles himself or whoever humbles herself will be exalted. It's the only cure for the crippling effects of religion we looked at last time, it's the only cure for bloaty head syndrome as well. So let's round up and let's finish. Uh, and let's finish as Jesus finished in this passage, which is the final thing, which is, okay then, if we're cured from this, how are we supposed to live? And very quickly, Jesus uh, sums this up in the last part of the passage. Verse 12, I'll just read it to you again. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. For these religious leaders here, they would not have dreamt of inviting these sort of people to their banquet. Okay, the, the poor, the blind, the lame, all of those. Just so, you know, this guy who comes in, I don't know what he's doing there, but he's clearly not invited we know that because otherwise Jesus wouldn't be saying, when you hold a banquet, invite those sort of people. They go, well, we did, look, he's here. No, Jesus saw him, I don't know how he got there, but they wouldn't have thought of that. That's not how they operate. Because actually, it fits into everything that's been said. One of the reasons is that spending time with people like that is not seen as an impressive thing. That's not what people see as kind of a thing that kind of bigs you up. It's not a place of honor to do that. People would have talked in those days, I guess like these days, about banquets that are full of local dignitaries and uh, members of the religious establishment. That's probably why Jesus was there. He's a local celebrity. He can be here. But if, if you turn your banquet into the uh, kind of equivalent of a soup kitchen, Hello Magazine are not going to come knocking at your door. This, it wasn't true then. It's not true today. Puffed up, proud people do not care about people in humble situations. But actually... 
if they accept Jesus' healing on this matter, it doesn't just mean that you avoid embarrassing social faux pas in future. No, it means that actually we're freed up to love others without a regard for those who are looking at us from around. I think that's the link in this passage between these things. I encourage you today, not just to accept God's healing in your life, but to, to endeavor to start applying that healing by applying this practically. And I, I'd do that is this. And if you feel that in this talk, you feel that God's grace has been on me in this, I, feel, I can see a way through. I've, I've always struggled with this, you know. I've struggled with it a bit. But I see actually how God honors me. I don't need to push myself forward. I feel a freedom. I feel like even a lifting now. Maybe you wouldn't talk about such things in a grand way. Maybe you'd say something like, someone said, what about church someday? You could say something like, God really spoke to me through the message. We're in that sort of territory, okay? If that's the case, I'd like to flag something up for you to do, okay? Do this. Look out for opportunities to help those whose circumstances are clearly lesser than yours. Look out, clock it in your mind now. Okay, this is what God spoke to me. This is what Jesus implies this passage as. Now we're free from the pressure, I think the idea goes, of having to impress God and also from having to impress other people around us. Let's completely forget about how we look to others and aim to be a blessing to those who need it. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the neighbour on your road who nobody talks to, the family of Eastern European immigrants who live around the corner who don't speak the language and everyone's a little bit suspicious of, the big issue seller, the mum at the school gates who's obviously struggling to raise her kids. Let's look out for them and let's love them. Let's invite and welcome them into our lives. Let's not be proud people with our eyes on the proud to gain their respect, but let's be humble people who aim to bless and love the humble. 